Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, host David Bell speaks with Dr. Nicole Price, author of the forthcoming book, Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. Empathy, often dismissed as a soft skill, is one of the most undervalued skills at our disposal. Recognizing and understanding why another person believes what they believe and values what they value, even if it's different from your own views and thoughts, is fundamental to the criminal justice system. Empathy is the act of seeing, acknowledging, experiencing, and responding to the emotional state and ideas of another person. This compassion is the very soul of community. If you're unable to be empathetic, can you ever be truly effective? On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Price. She's author of Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. We're going to start today by learning a little bit about what empathy is and what it isn't. And then we're going to use those lessons to apply it to current events, including the recent shooting by Andrew Lester of Ralph Yarrow. With that, we welcome Dr. Nicole Price to our show. Dr. Price, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I always enjoy our discussions. And, you know, I was thinking... You know, I have to book you months in advance, and I don't know what's going to be in the news at that time, but I feel like every time I have you on right beforehand, something happens which is relevant to our discussion, and it's happened here. I think the universe is wonderful to us in that way, <laughs> isn't it, to give us Absolutely. something interesting to talk about? I, I really enjoy the concept of empathy uh, because I had to struggle with my own definition, and at least as you've presented it to me in the book, and if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what empathy is and what it isn't, because I can tell you that in reading your book and trying to figure it out, I learned a lot about what it isn't. Yeah, I think it's helpful if we just kind of stick to the simple definition, because there's a lot of science around empathy. And the simple definition is understanding what another person thinks, feels, and believes, knowing that whatever they think, feel, and believe makes total sense to them, based on their own lived experiences. What it's not is kindness. You can be not kind and be empathetic. It also does not mean agreement. Uh, You and I don't have to share the same identities or values or even lived experiences in order for me to empathize with you. But typically when people use the word, when they say, I have empathy in that situation, They either mean sympathy, they feel sorry for, uh, which I do think is a valid um, feeling to have uh, sometimes, or they are thinking, I understand, meaning I am understanding of you and why you made those choices, but not in a way of just using empathy as information, but more in a way of, I would probably do that same thing that I I agree with what you're doing. And I think it's important to separate value proposition from 
using empathy as a tool to understand somebody. Well, and going back to that example, saying that I kind of understand what you're doing, when you're using those words, you're saying, based on my lived experiences, Dr. Price, I understand what you're doing, meaning running it through my own lens. But it seems to me that empathy, at least is the way you've described it in the book, cognitive empathy would be something where I'm actually able to understand it from your viewpoint and from whatever lens you put on every morning. That's exactly right. And many times we get ourselves in trouble when we try to look at another person through our lens and our lived experiences and how we would do it. Many times we can misattribute both positively and negatively when we do that, where true cognitive empathy is neither positive or negative. It is, let me listen to you, pay attention to you, and use that information to help me make better decisions as I interact with you, or in the case of this situation with Andrew Lester, how do I use that information to frame where I'm gonna stand on the issue in terms of do I think the prosecutor did the right thing or the wrong thing? Um, Do I think he should have a gun or not have a gun? Do I think his actions were reasonable or unreasonable? But I have to understand you to get there. Right, and that seems to be very much the point of the book and helping us explore our own ability to empathize. One of the persons in your book that you discuss at length, uh, particularly in the beginning and setting the stage for the rest of the book, is your mother. And you use your mother as an example of, at least at first, your resistance to this idea of empathy and actually an idea uh, that suggested to you at first weakness potentially or vulnerability. And I know you've You've moved past that. You've learned. But I wonder if you could take our listeners briefly through that. Well, we, I got to just say that I learned the hard way, not the easy way. You know, there's multiple ways to learn empathy. In fact, I think there are two ways. Uh, one is through lived experience. You know, let's say I have a harsh position about how people who are sick need to show up for work. Or uh, maybe I have a pretty harsh position around health care and whether or not it needs to be reformed. But there's not a person I've ever met who um, has some kind of terminal illness whereby they really cannot work, like let's say you get cancer, where that opens up the heart and the mind to what else might be possible because you experienced it yourself. That's kind of how I learned. I had an incredible grief event that caused me to uh, change my empathy position. But my mother, I think, is one of those people who has emotional empathy and cognitive empathy. And... Emotional empathy in that she can, she could easily feel the emotions of other people. And whenever I've met someone who is uh, rich with effective empathy, what I find is a person who just, it's almost hard for them to do something harmful for another person because they can feel what the other person feels. But that can't be taught. That, that is not um, a type of empathy that can be taught. But mental empathy or cognitive empathy can be. And... When I was growing up, my mother was a high school cafeteria worker, and then she was the food ministry worker at her church, and she also fed fed people in our community. Well, I grew up in the heart of Kansas City in the 80s and 90s at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic, and you could see some horrific things happening day to day. You know, people selling their bodies to be able to afford their habit, people engaging in criminal activity to be able to afford their habit. And the mind can start to say, what's wrong with you? 
especially if the person does it again and again and again, because I can't think of anything that I would be willing to go to jail for. My mother didn't really ask, you know, what's wrong with you? You know, she would get to know people. And because she got to know people, she didn't even have to ask what happened to you. She would know <laughs> because she would listen. And through that lens of knowing, I would find myself being overwhelmed, even when I would go visit as an adult, listening to person after person after person come through her home, um, mostly for food, sometimes just for listening ear. And I'm like, I've had a long day at work. You have the engineering, um, as an engineer in a, in a manufacturing facility. And now I got to listen to you talk about how you lost your house or lost about to lose your kid or about got to go to court or somebody doesn't have clothes after they got out of jail. And I just remember feeling anxious, like it's just too much. And I felt like some people who kept coming back again and again were using her. And I felt like she needed boundaries. But what I've come to understand today is that she knew that some people only wanted her to listen, that she didn't need to do anything else. And she wasn't like me. She wasn't letting it come in and sit. She was letting it come in. And then for her, her spiritual life dictated that she was giving it to God after it was given to her. She wasn't holding on to it. She wasn't holding it in her body. That's one. But two, I think she was making some very clear decisions about who she helped and who she didn't, because clearly she did not she did not help everybody. She couldn't. And so I don't know that people were using her in as much as she was just making her decisions by also considering what had happened to someone and what was her own capacity to be able to to deliver. So she was both emotionally empathetic and cognitively empathetic, both of those. I hear you say a few things, and I, and I wanted to look through your book. I was going to try to find this graph, not a graph, but this circle that you had, the idea of, of what you can control versus what you can versus what you can influence, and I'll, I'll find that in a sec. But going with your mother, it, it seems that there's two concepts going on at least. One is her ability to understand others uh, through their eyes, to take them as they are, whatever that is, and understand that. And the second is, it sounds like your mom was just a really good person, and so she decided to use that knowledge to help when she could. And, but, but again, I don't want to conflate kindness mm -hmm. with empathy, at least as I understand your book. Yeah, because they, you know, they're close. They're in close proximity, but they are not the same. If you are emotionally empathetic, you probably will be kinder to people because you know what it feels like when somebody's unkind to you. But again, most of the book about uh, how do we engineer empathy in organizations, I can't. I have not found a way to teach adults effective empathy or emotional empathy. But if you can imagine that you know that one of your employees is a farmer and that they do their farm chores before they come to work and that they live 60 minutes away, wouldn't that help you be more thoughtful during a snowstorm if they're a little late? And it's not about holding them accountable or not having rules that people have to follow. I think it gives you the information you need to add a little more human, human component to whatever those rules are. And the trust allows you to be able to hold people accountable in ways that they can be committed to. Right. But if I feel like you don't care anything about me or because the person who drives for an hour to get to work every day is probably pretty committed to that career. And if I don't know that, how can I make fair, equitable decisions? Like, 
how, what does it look like to treat that person like the, the person who lives across the street from the plant, who just has to walk across the street? They probably will never be late. And so I, what I'm just trying to do with this empathy revolution is to get people to recognize that there is space for us to spend time trying to understand what else is going on in a person's life. And you do that as a criminal defense attorney. Sure. You have to, and you have to understand particularly where my clients are coming from, but also where victims may be coming from, where prosecutors are coming from, what they, what they, may, what they may want. And, and going back to this example with the farmer who's coming into work, you know, the empathy, at least as you've indicated here, it doesn't have to be good or bad. You could don't have to use it for equitable purposes or not. It's a, it's a piece of information, a data point that you can use to pursue your values, whatever those may be. If equity is one of those, then certainly you have to be empathetic of your employees to be able to do that. But that, that's that data point that I think that we get nervous about looking at. And, and I want to talk briefly about the nervousness part. I was looking at that, the example you gave in your book, it was the circle of control versus circle of concern. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about what that anxiety may be initially. And I know I can tell it myself, in, in the center of this circle is circle of control, which is essentially things which you have control over personally is how I took it from the book. Outside of that is the circle of influence. And then outside of that is the circle of concern. Mm -hmm. And the circle of concern is something that it certainly, it, it concerns you, you're bothered by, but you may not have impact, uh, you may not be able to solve the entire problem. I think right. environmental issues is what you brought up. But I could see in the desire to close off that the noise is so much, because you see so much pain and so much anguish out there that you start to think, I can't solve any of it, yeah. and so I'm just gonna push it all out. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, you know, I um, yeah, that's right. And I, I read a book called Working Our Way Home by Ron Hall and Denver Moore, and it's about a homeless ex-con and a millionaire art dealer who become friends. It sounds like fiction, but it's not, it's a real story. And it makes me think about homelessness because I talk about one of my friends who is homeless. Uh, she, when she had her first baby, she had postpartum depression. And then when she had her second baby, it turned into paranoid schizophrenia. And anyway, today she lives on the street. And so homelessness is one of those things that's kind of scary to me when you talk about like nervousness and because and, it feels like, man, that could be me because yeah. it was a, a friend that I spent a lot of time with. But if I was, let's say I was gonna tackle homelessness, if I look at how many people across the globe don't have some place to live, that problem is so big, it's like mega data, that you're like, where do I start? Even if I thought about addressing homelessness here in Kansas City, it still might be too big for me to figure out where I can, I can start. But the reason I brought up Working Our Way Home is because Denver Moore said, that if every church in the United States decided that they were gonna be responsible for one homeless person, yeah. we could eradicate homelessness in the nation. That's just one congregation at a time saying, hey, give me a person and we're gonna make sure that they're not on the street. And each church does have the ability to do that probably, right. you know, to house a person. Because what our bias has taught us is that people who are homeless have some kind of mental problem. But when I talk to people who have studied homelessness, most, I think they said 80% of homelessness can be fixed with money. Like it is. Financial. You, it is financial. You just didn't have anybody to help you when you lost your job or you lost your car and then you lost your job or you're 
you had a flat tire one day and it was on the, your car was on the interstate and then it got towed and then you couldn't get it out of the tow lot. We had this kind of experience just last fall with somebody's car being in a tow lot and right. how complicated it can be when you don't have all your documentation right. You're going to lose your car if you don't have somebody to help you. And so if you don't have a car, then how do you get to work in a place that, you know, is not easily accessible for public transportation? And just that ball that gets rolling. But if I start thinking about, oh, my gosh, how do I make sure everybody has a way to get to work? Or how do I think about homelessness globally? It's not that I'm not concerned about it, because I am. But that's going to drive some anxiety in most people. What we can control is, am I going to do anything to make sure that um, homeless people have socks in the winter? Or do I want to contribute to some tents? Or uh, do I want to support an organization that um, specializes in getting people housed? And Or do I want to involve myself in foster ch- uh, with foster care systems for when kids get like released from the system who also tend to end up homeless? Those things are smaller chunks that it any of us decide that we're going to take it on, then we can eradicate these bigger societal issues. You bring up a great, a great quote in your book uh, that I had never heard of, Mother Teresa. And the quote was, if I look at the mass, I will never act. If I look at one, I will. I thought that was really powerful. And that's kind of what you're saying here, which is it's this this anxiety that arises of facing an insurmountable problem, which, by the way, is similar to the anxiety I face when I face any major project in my life, I have to deal, I have to lean into that anxiety where I've got a big brief due or I've got something. There's this anxiety because it's so big, it's so much, I it's can't massive. figure it. It's massive, but you start one little bit at a time. You know, that's one part of the anxiety. The other part of the anxiety that I, that you brought up in the book that I, I related to was this anxiety of, oh, geez, that could be me, right? So now we're not fixing anybody. Now we're like, oh, that's I don't want that to be me. And in this friend of yours who was homeless that you came in contact with the first time, there was that anxiety you had, and you wound up kicking yourself later for it. If you could briefly talk about that type of anxiety that comes up. Yeah, I think we want to separate ourselves from what's, what frightens us, what's scary. Because can you imagine? I mean, it was like the three of us, me, my best friend, and, and her. It was like we're the dynamic trio. <laughs> and life going along just great. And who expects that postpartum depression, like having a kid, is going to be the thing that causes you, your mind to fail you? And you're like, okay, if that could happen to her, it could happen to me. And on a more global societal level, when we think about criminal justice, I can't help but when you see a 16-year-old boy who's 5'7", 130 pounds, goes to the wrong house, all I can think about is my son when he was in high school selling trash bags, you know, right. um, going to many homes. Somebody could have killed my son. Like that was my first thought. And and when you when you do that, that in some ways is empathy. What would I want to happen if it were me? In some ways, but the type that I want the what I want people to kind of lean into is how do you not think necessarily about your own situation and really lean into that other person's situation and try to imagine what they are experiencing, how they're moving through the world, how they feel it. And I think in the circles where I move, people were able to do that with Ralph Yarl and Ralph Yarl's mother. They had a harder time doing that with Andrew Lester, um, with the prosecutor. And when I would suggest it, 
when I went to the protest um, before um, Mr. Lester had been charged, I knew several people in the audience and many of them said to me, I know you're on this sympathy journey, but I can't empathize with this. One of them is a pastor of a church. Hello. And I said, are you sure you can't empathize? Or is it that you can't agree or grant grace in this situation? Because I'm not asking you to agree and I'm not asking you to grant grace. I'm asking you to say, okay, I am older and white and I live in Clay County and what would need to happen for you to go answer the door? You said you're scared. So can you imagine this 84-year-old man being scared? What would ask, okay, let me think through what would cause him to go answer the door. Hard for me to kind of understand, but I'm trying. Right. And that's, so let's say I can't get to that. Then I say, okay, well, maybe he was going to try to scare the person because he was scared. Again, trying to stay out of my head, because in my head, if I'm scared, the last thing I'm going to do is go to the door. But that's not empathy, thinking about what I would do. I've got to try to think about what he's doing. So he knows he has a weapon, so he's going to go to the door. Okay, all right. What makes you open the door Right. if you're scared? So he opens the door. He has a storm door. I know all this because I was standing outside of his house where his neighbors had already allegedly replaced his storm door. Somebody did. I don't know who did. Okay, let me now get into the head of the person who then shoots through the door, not once, but twice. And for me, empathetically speaking, you're like, that person should not have a gun. Right. Or if you think that person should have a gun and they have the mental capacity to be able to make all of those decisions, the next right action is to charge, charge them because it's almost like they put themselves in the position to be able to harm another human. And then this is not talked about in the book, but one of the things that I did personally was then say, what if I was afraid of a dog? I'm not, I, I love mm. dogs, but if I were, somebody's dog was at my door, I can see the dog on my ring camera. Why would I go to the door? Like, just leave the dog out there. Sure. <laughs> you know, do whatever you want out there. I'm not coming out. And if I decide to go out, go to the door, and then open the door and shoot the dog through the door, not once but twice, I bet you I'd get charged. Mm. And I also bet you that in the news I'd be vilified. So I find it interesting when in conversations people have sympathy for the shooter. Not empathy, but sympathy. Oh, I feel sorry for him. And he was scared. And why was it that the the boy was picking up his siblings, like victim blaming? Right. And what I need all of us to be able to do, or more of us to be able to do. Malcolm Gladwell says we only need 26% of our culture doing something before it tips in favor of whatever is happening. If I could get more of us to think just what, let me think about what about that person's lived experience would even cause them be, to be afraid of a black 16-year-old orchestra player just looking at them through, a, through video. And that tells you unconscious biases is there. Right. And that's why in most of my work, I'm trying to get people to understand and know more about their unconscious bias. Because when you're making decisions fast, your unconscious bias will make you do things that your conscious mind would never do. And we have to start looking at that instead of being afraid. This is David Bellinus at the Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Price. She's the author of Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. We've been talking about the concept of empathy. We've talked about how it arose in uh, Dr. Price's life. This is the subject of the book. And we're now going to use it to apply to 
a current situation in the news, which is the shooting by Andrew Lester of Ralph Yarl. When we get, come back, we'll talk a little bit more of that and how the concept of empathy can be applied to those two individuals and other individuals in the criminal justice system so that whatever we decide to do, we're doing it consistent with our values. This is David Bell on Jaws of Justice 90.1 KKFI. Eco Radio KC, a locally produced exploration of positive solutions to the ecological challenges we face as we work to create a healthier future for our community and the planet. Hear from regional and national guests, find out about upcoming events, and learn how to keep yourself and your family well. Tune in each week from 6 to 7 on Monday evenings or listen anytime at kkfi.org slash podcasts. Hey, it's Junebug. It's that time again for the Blues Kitchen Live. This year's event benefits the Center for Recorded Music and KKFI. Be part of the live audience at UMKC Student Union Saturday, April 29th at 8 a.m. for breakfast and barbecue. We'll be playing the blues and talking some Q. Thanks go out to BB's Lawnside Barbecue for their help. Don't forget, get your tickets from centerforrecordedmusic.org, centerforrecordedmusic.org, and come hungry. I'm talking about more, more clean Here's the calendar for the week of April 24th. Legal Aid of Western Missouri can provide free civil legal services to low-income and vulnerable people who live in Jackson County, Missouri. Interested individuals can call 816-474-6750 to apply. For Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense virtual meetings this week, you can go to MomsDemandAction.org. All are welcome, mothers and others. Please check the calendar at moresquare.org for events that you can attend. Tuesday, April 25th, 6 p.m., the Legislative Veto Session 2023 What to Know, What to Do meets at the Johnson County Library Central. 9875 West 87th Street, Overland Park, Kansas. This will be a community conversation with Kansas advocates hosted by Mainstream Coalition and the League of Women Voters for Johnson County on what to expect and actions you can take during veto session 2023. This event will be hybrid. If you wish to participate via Zoom, then please choose that option when you fill out the RSVP form. A Zoom link will be sent to you. More info at aclukansas.org. Thursday, April 27th, 6.30 p.m., Take Back the Night gathers at the Gazebo, South Park, 1440 Massachusetts, Lawrence, Kansas. The Sexual Trauma and Abuse Care Center asks us to join the annual Take Back the Night event to show solidarity and support for victim survivors of sexual violence and fight to end sexual violence. Thursday, April 27th, 7 p.m., the April membership meeting is a Kansas City, Missouri candidate forum, an online event of the Greater KC Women's Political Caucus, who will be inviting Kansas City municipal election candidates to speak on pro-choice issues. More info at Facebook, GKCWPC. 
Thursday, April 27th at 7 p.m., Missourians for Alternatives to the Death Penalty is having their monthly meeting. Learn more about clemency campaigns, legislative updates, and pending cases. To register, please go to MADPMO on Facebook. Friday, April 28th, 4.30 p.m., I'm So Glad, a film about the Kansas City roots of Black gospel, will be shown at the Black Archives of Mid-America, 1722 East 17th Terrace, Kansas City, Missouri. This is free and open to the public. A list of services, meals, and hotlines are available at lawrenceprogressivecalendar.blogspot.com. That list is updated daily. Items in this calendar can also be found on this episode's page at the KKFI website, kkfi.org, as well as on the Jaws of Justice Facebook page. Please take care of yourselves and others. Thanks for listening to Jaws of Justice. Let's return to the program. David Bell speaking with Dr. Nicole Price about her new book, Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Dr. Nicole Price. She's author of Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization. In the first half, we talked about the concept of empathy, and then we began a discussion about the recent shooting by Andrew Lester of Ralph Yarrow. You know, Dr. Price, I want to bring up a concept that I deal with a lot in the criminal justice system, and that is the demonization of defendants. It's the demonization of individuals that have been convicted. It's in a, in a demonization of someone like Andrew Lester. And I'm going to throw out a concept here to talk about, which is when we demonize the person, I think we lose something there, which is to say we lose the idea of or we lose the ability to understand that person's viewpoint. And even more important, we learn we lose the ability to maybe understand how we are more like that other person that we want to believe. Mm -hmm. So, for example, with Andrew Lester, certainly I'm going to demonize the behavior. Yes. Okay, but I'm not going to demonize the person. Uh, First of all, my own personal belief is that I just don't want to do that. I think everyone's got goodness in them. But secondly, by throwing up that barrier, by throwing up that, that barrier that prevents me from empathizing with him and understanding a little bit more about him, I lose the potential then of understanding how I am like him in some way. I may not be on the con- I may not be at the point where I would shoot someone through the door, particularly a young black man, but I am certain in my own life and, and as my own lived experience, then my, uh, my understanding that I may be somewhere on that continuum where I have unconscious bias against people of color for a variety of reasons that I'm still dealing with, and that's okay. What, what do you think about that as a, as, a, as a loss, if you will, from demonizing and a loss from not being able to or willing to empathize with someone, even who you may say has done the absolute worst thing ever, in this case, uh, an older man shooting a, a young a young black man who's done nothing but knock on the door to pick up or ring the doorbell to pick up his, yeah. his siblings. You know, one of the days in my life where my heart broke wide open was my, my 12-year-old son, he's 24 now, was running along with his friends at an outdoor shopping mall. And when he got close to a white woman and her daughter, she pulled her daughter closer and grabbed her purse. And I'm watching it all happen in front of me. My son was completely oblivious to it. And I knew instantly then that he had gone from being seen as a child to being seen as as a threat. And 
it's scary for a parent to think that he's doing nothing. <laughs> he's laughing and giggling and jogging along, and there's no way my son in that moment was, was going to cause her any harm. And I think people don't think about the, the only reason they wouldn't shoot someone through a door is because they don't have a gun. Right. <laughs> but how does that unconscious bias play out in the workplace when you are a recruiter and you see a name that sounds black and you don't call that person back because your unconscious bias is driving you? Or what does it look like when you are the one who can decide what an interest rate is on a loan at a bank and you just charge a little extra because you just inherently think that black people are irresponsible with their money. Or when you consider black maternal health rates and, and death rates in the U.S., when black women, when you control for every possible social determinant of health, control for wealth, you can control for education, you can control for eating habits and exercise, and black women are still more likely to die in childbirth. That's because of unconscious bias. And the demonization that has happened around unconscious bias these days, I think is unfortunate because if you said, I have unconscious bias and that's okay, I would say yes and when you know you have unconscious bias, you work a little harder to try to overcome it is the expectation. That's right. And so when we look at an Andrew Lester and say, separate and apart from me, he's a really bad white person. You and I have had these conversations. Sure. I'm not like that person in Alabama, or I'm not like that person with a pickup truck, right. or I'm not like that person who su supports certain political candidates. Here's what I think about. Andrew Lester is somebody's grandfather. Andrew Lester has likely sat at someone's table. I'm just imagining. Right. And had some racist ideas that would alert someone that he sees a young black person as a threat. Who said some? Did anybody say anything before we got to this point? And I'm just, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, how do we save each other from ourselves? I tell the story in the book about my mom being uh, killed by a drunken driver. And there were people who were like, I hope he goes to jail forever. And, you know, they're telling jokes, don't drop the soap. Because, and even calling him a monster, because he had been in and out of jail eight times, I think, something close to eight. He had... um violated at least eight laws that day. That's how many charges he had when he uh, stole a car and rammed it to my mother and then ran. And it was like all kinds of charges. While I expect that he should have been held accountable, his name's Jonathan Ross. It's a public sure. case. So you can look it up. What does it say about me if I think he should be raped for his mistake? What does it say about me that I think he should be beaten up for his mistakes? And what I want people to do is Imagine you're sitting there watching it while he's being raped. Imagine you're sitting there watching it while he's being beaten up. And most of us can't stomach it because we do have somatic empathy in our body. We wouldn't be, a, we wouldn't be able to handle it. And the only reason why we are is because we separate ourselves. We don't want to be empathetic. We don't want to think about what would it be like for Jonathan Ross in that instance. We just want to lock people away and not consider and I just want to be very, very clear. I went to a protest because I thought for sure that Andrew Lester should have been charged. And I don't know what I thought his bill should be, but I thought it should be sizable enough that it would be really hard for him to get out of jail. Because I, once I was sitting in empathy, because I am a card-carrying member of the NRA, I cannot make sense of his choices unless he has a lot of bigoted ideas. 
It doesn't make sense to me. Would he have shot a um, 12-year-old Girl Scout? And if people were like, oh, well, of course not. Well, what's the difference? Both children, both children. And so I am just trying to spark an empathy revolution. I believe that Kansas City is the heart of the nation can be an example of empathy through the rest of the country. And that's what I think I can control. I live here, um, I work here, and I know people here who actually are good people. And if I could get well-meaning people to lean into understanding people better, I think we could really create a more inclusive, equitable, and just world. Well, I agree with that. But I will tell you, there is a discomfort. And, and, and as you were describing this, I was thinking two things. One, Andrew Lester and the idea of all of us, uh, particularly white people, asking, what is it that I have in common with him? Mm. And, and dealing with whatever feelings it is. And I'm not going to tell anybody out there what they have in common, what they don't have in common. I can tell you what I have in common, what I'm working on, certainly. But just asking that question, because I think when you demonize someone, you make it easy for yourself not to have to ask that question. As you often say, uh, we have a lot of work to do. And, and that's a true statement. It's easier for me to say, I'm not racist, and I'm not, uh, I'm not Andrew Lester, whatever he, he may or may not be. It's just easier for me to push that person aside. But there's a cost to that. And, you know, we had a, a guest on um, probably a year ago, and I apologize, I forgot her name, but she was in charge of a group of sex offenders. She was tr- treatment for sex offenders. And one of the things she brought up was the problem in demonizing individuals who are in prison for doing horrific things to children, as an example. And she said the problem with demonizing those individuals and making them the other is that you fail then to notice the people around you and the behaviors around you that may indicate a problem. And that if you really started to do that, we may help prevent some sexual violence because the reality is sexual violence, I think, predominantly happens, maybe overwhelmingly happens with people you know. But by doing the other, we don't look at this group around us. We look at, we say, you know, it's over there. I don't have to worry about it in my group. Yeah, I um, <laughs> when I think about that show, To Catch a Predator, yeah, I don't remember one episode where I thought that guy looks like a perv. Yeah, not one episode where I thought the person looked perverted. And so, what does that say? That means we have a bias around what we think perversion looks yeah. like, as um, if somebody who would attack children. And when I think about Jonathan Ross and I think about what I had to be honest about was had I ever drank and been just a little buzzed? Sure. Or had I ever gotten behind the wheel of a car and I was a little sleepy and was driving? Mm -hmm. And what if by chance I dozed off and I hit somebody and they died? All of a sudden now, here I am facing second degree murder charges And my most critical family member, the day I gave the victim impact statement, because I was chosen to give the victim impact statement for my family, and I chose to talk about who my mother was. And if I'm talking about who my mother is, I can't leave out that she fed the left out, the left behind, that she clothed the person in prison. She lived according to what she thought Jesus would have her to do. I have to say that. Sure. And if I, when, when I said that, the judge considered it when she gave him 10 less years on his sentence. And my most ardent critic that day said, was so upset, but it's important for you to know 
that he could not drive his car at that time because he had had too many DUIs. We have to start. If and, and I know it's hard to kind of put yourself in the shoes of another person, get in their skin and walk around in it, as Harper Lee would say, um, in To Kill a Mockingbird. If we can't do that, I think a, a baby step is to say, what would I want to happen if it were me? I know a lot of octogenarians. Right. I don't think any of them should have a gun. And they have great cognitive ability. But they're slower. Physically, they are slower. And so for their own personal safety, I'm like, somebody might take the gun from you. All kinds of things sure. could happen. And so when I consider his age, I'm like, why don't we have some kind of gun control law that if you have a gun that's similar to your driver's license, you have to re-up to say that you can be re- you can be responsible with it. And I don't know what his cognitive situation is, but I know I got to see him on television and it looked like his physical ability is such that you probably wouldn't want, I wouldn't want my grandfather to have a gun. So a baby step for me, if you can't imagine what another person is thinking, feeling, and believing, then... Try to imagine what you would want to happen if it were you. That's a good that's a good first step. But most of the time we say, I can't imagine. Right. And and then putting up that barrier, that anxiety. You and I have talked about this a number of times, this feeling of discomfort that comes up when we are maybe moving into a little of the unknown or a little bit of the dangerous. And I think you and I both agree that that it's in that discomfort, that space where we, the most growth happens. Mm-hmm. But there's a fear of that fear. There's a fear of that anxiety. So when I come up and I, I go talk to my friends, I'm like, we ought to consider how we're like Andrew Lester. They're like, uh-oh, whoa, Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait. So they put up this big barrier. They're like, what are, you, what are you talking? I'm like, if you can't even ask that question and go through that in your mind, then there may be an issue there. And you decide however you decide, but the ability to ask that question. And, and how do you act when somebody's knocking at your proverbial door? That's right. That's exactly right. You know, the other point that I was thinking about with this was, was going back to your your mom and description of how she essentially was the neighborhood mother, if you will, the church mother. Everyone's mother would come in. And, and again, I never met her, and I regret never meeting her. So if I was speaking out of turn, you let me know. But I, I got the idea that when she defined the word I or who she was, that definition took on much more than just her physical body. Oh, yeah. That it incorporated everyone around her and everyone around them that she probably didn't even know. And so when she came upon somebody, that person was never another. That person was someone, that person was her almost to a certain extent. And so that allowed that, that love potentially to, to emanate from her around her and incorporate everybody. Is that? Yeah. It's slightly shocking. And sometimes like one of her best friends was a younger woman who was lesbian, who was a carpenter. Mm-hmm. Another, she was a black uh, woman. Another person was um, a, a white, middle-aged man with a ponytail who'd had all kinds of problems, but was loved my mother. Like, her friend group was just very, very interesting and mixed and, mm-hmm. and I would say strange um, because she was open to, if you have a heart then that wants to connect I'm going to connect and I still have no idea how she fed so many people David it didn't matter when you showed up right there was food Mm -hmm. how do you like think about this if I show up it kind of changes your grocery bill if I show up every day absolutely there would legit I am not exaggerating 
there would be almost 50 people every day coming through and there was always food. How do you do that? Mm. How do you do that? And I think it's because you have to spread your network to, uh, you have to think beyond yourself. You have to think community. You have to think, um, well, well, I think there's a, a Puerto Rican adage that uh, babies are born with bread. And my mom kind of thought that way, that if somebody else shows up, enough food is gonna happen. And I often ask the question in my race equity ex, um, exercises, is there enough food for everyone? Because the answer is, there is. For those of us who are buy food and then throw it out, we, we know there's enough food for everyone. We just don't know how to get it to people or we don't always think about it. And I just wanna be incredibly vulnerable. Are you okay with that? Yes. I was nervous about even talking about empathy to Andrew Lester because I know people think it means agreement that I know people think that somehow I'm making some excuse for him. But it's not. It's me taking in the information. Even with Jonathan Ross, I have nothing. He, he literally mowed my mother over and tried to run away when he saw her. I don't agree with his choices that day. It's just the information about what happened to him helps me to understand that if those same things had happened to me, then maybe I would also numb myself with drugs. Maybe I would also be heartbroken when the only person who ever acted like they loved me was my grandmother who died. Maybe me too, just as I see myself in my friend. And when you see yourself in someone else, it is, I wasn't advocating that he didn't go to jail at all. He killed somebody. But I'll ask again, what does it say about me if I say he needs the harshest penalty possible when he did not intend to? Or what does it say about me when I think he should be raped. Right. In some ways, doesn't that make me a rapist? Absolutely. And I think also it, it, it puts you in a situation where you are acting or saying things that are inconsistent with what I know your values what to be. What my values are. And, and to me, the, the biggest point of, of empathy or the book, uh, the biggest point for me about the concept of it that you brought up is, is it's a data point. You know, going to your, I'm going to just assume your engineering background. Mm -hmm. It's a data point that is needed in order to make decisions that are going to impact other people. And whatever decisions you plan to make, whatever your values are, we're not here to speak to them today, or at least I'm not. But I will tell you, you need that data point. And without that, you will never be able to make decisions entirely consistent with your values because you're missing out on something big. And to me, that's what's so important about this book and the this idea that you put forth in there about how to develop that empathy muscle you know, I was thinking about Ralph Yarrow and uh, his mother, potentially, and and the concept of race. And, and one thing that I it's always been uh, in the back of my mind in terms of dealing with is how can I f fully em uh, empathize with a black person in that I will never have that experience that your son had walking down this, you're walking next to a white woman. I'll never have that experience uh, potentially of of a black mother who's got to worry that their kid is going to not make it home because of some interaction with law enforcement or interaction with someone like uh, Mr. Lester. And so if I can't experience that, Dr. Price, to fully know it, like you said, how is it then I can develop empathy about that? And I know we, it's a, it, that's a long, detailed conversation, and the answer's in your book, but if you could give me a hint at that. Yeah, I think sometimes when we don't have, and let me not say I think, 
When we don't have the same lived experience as another person, we've got to just trust and believe what they tell us. And I find some white people to be incredibly hypocritical and nothing like this Ralph Yarl situation to bring it to light. While I think what happened to him should happen to no child, even if they are happen to be impoverished, even if they happen to not be orchestra players, uh, even if they happen to not get letters from the governor about their academic achievements, Ralph Yarl did all of the things that white people say that black people need to do to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. He avoided all of the social determinants that people bring back to you when they're talking about the fictitious black-on-black crime. And still, in some of my white circles, what I heard was, well, why was he at the wrong ad address? Why was he pulling on the door? Why, why, why was he, why was he, why was he? He's a clarinet player. Right. Who's so good at what he does that the governor sent him a letter. He's played at the Kaufman Center. He's in the STEM program. His parents live in Staley High School area. So that for me feels disingenuous to even ask those questions. Because what it tells me is you would ask those questions no matter what, if the person who got shot was black. And that is a lack of empathy and we have got to reckon with it. Because if you consider that, what would you want? Imagine yourself being 16 year old Ralph Yarrow, standing on the porch, it's dark, you went to street instead of terrace. It happens right now, people come to my home, I get mail from, uh, I have, there's an exact address like mine, but it's in Houston Lake, Missouri, not Kansas City, which is truly just, I could walk to Houston Lake. You see it as a simple mistake and no one should almost lose their life for a simple mistake. And when I find hypocrisy to, to be the thing, that keeps us from being empathetic for sure. And, and, and I agree with that, and I, but I think that hypocrisy winds up being a, uh, a, a way of, of protecting oneself to a certain extent, yeah. right? It, if I don't wanna ask the tough questions about that situation and how, how whatever is in that situation that I could be a part of, responsible for, that I could have some of the same attributes, if I don't wanna ask that situation, I'm gonna try to find reasons to push Not, it out. To push it out. So it's it's Ralph Yarl's fault for touching the doorbell at 10 yeah. o'clock. Or Andrew Lester's a monster. His, or his mama's fault for sending him to get the kids. Right. So it's it's something, there's something about that situation that makes it so odd or so different that it's something else out there that I can't, I don't have to relate to because God forbid if I have to relate to it, then I got to think about it. And then, and then I know I have work to do. And I might need to change my positions on some things. The listeners can't see you but you had your hand up in the air kind of pushing out. Mm -hmm. And that is the visual that I use in my, my lead workshops to show what is the antithesis of empathy. When you say, I just cannot imagine, or I just want to push it away, because some of us value things that are not good for us as a larger society. Or maybe I believe something that racism doesn't exist and people are just making it up. You can't make sense of what just happened on that porch that night if that if what you believe to be true is true. And it is hard, and I'll be the first to say, sure. it is hard to have your core beliefs challenged and shifted. It's not easy. I honor that. In fact, in the book, I kind of say, 
yeah, you can teach empathy, but it's not quick. And for a microwave society, people aren't excited about this idea. But if I'm going to live to be 80 years old and I start today, man, I sure can make some great progress. I like that. And, and as, as you've indicated, we've, we've got, got work to do. We've got work to do. Dr. Price, uh, author of Spark the Heart, Engineering Empathy in Your Organization, it's out now. I assume you can get it on Amazon. Amazon, uh, Target, Book Reads. Um, it's on Audible for people who prefer to listen and Kindle. And actually, I've seen it at the airport, too. It's on display at the airport as well. Oh, it is in the um, the new terminal here in Kansas City. And then starting in October, it'll be in about 25 markets, uh, the, the physical hardcover. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I appreciate you. This is David Bell. You're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI.
nearing my prime. What am I gonna do now? Am I gonna make it? Somewhere, somehow. Well, maybe I'm not supposed to know. We hope you enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.